This is the Catholic Money Mastermind podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of our faith and finances. You can learn more about our organization and find show notes at catholicfinancialplanners.com. Please note, especially in today's episode, that nothing should be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice that we talk about today. Here is how to save and invest for short-term goals. So welcome back to Catholic Money Mastermind. My name is Andy Flattery. I'm a certified financial planner and owner of Simple Wealth Planning. I'm here with Michael Acosta, who is also a CFP at Consolidated Planning. And today we're tackling the issue of how to invest for the short term, how to handle short-term savings and investments. Michael, first off, how are you? Doing great, Andy. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I thought maybe we should at first off just talk about why we're talking about this this issue. I mean, it sounds kind of basic, it maybe even sounds a little bit boring, but I thought we could just open with the the reason for the topic itself. And so, Michael, I'm going to throw just a couple of things at you and I want to hear your thoughts. So, you know, to hear today in December of it's December of 2020. I don't know when we're going to run this. It might be a ways out, but the ten-year treasury, ten-year treasury bond is trading at sorry is is yielding 0.92 percent or or 92 basis points today. So that translation, it's yielding less than one percent to tie up your money for ten years in what many consider to be the safest investment, in treasury bonds. And so that's kind of the biggest thing, and maybe the biggest reason why it's people are just finding finding it so challenging to. You know, find a place to park your your money for the short term. My, Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I I agree. It's 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 kind of I don't want to say frightening, but it, it almost stumps you a little bit because you know, with the ten year Treasury being kind of that that safe place to park your money, the conversation is, well, how do I do that now when I'm getting less than one percent and not even close to keeping up with inflation? You know. Traditionally, when dealing with this conversation with clients, it was, you know, we could we could look at putting most of, of your just emergency fund or life events fund, whatever term you want to use or however you coin that phrase, into a high yield savings account, whether it be, you know, a traditional institution or a non-traditional institution where there's no brick and mortar that's offering one and a half to two and a half percent. I think earlier this year in 2020, in about January, February, it was American Express who was offering about two and a half percent yield on their high yield savings account. So a lot of a lot of clients were were going that way just to earn a little bit more without taking any risk. And obviously, most planners are advising you know that emergency fund, that life events fund, should have as much reduced risk as possible because you don't want to have you know the potential for principal loss. So it's how do we now? advisor, how do we now tackle this question of, well, where should I be parking my my money in the short term? And for me, short term is really, you know, one to three, one to five years. And those funds could be used for various, various means, whether it be just, you know, withstanding an unexpected life event, down payment on the purchase of a home, money towards, you know, starting a business, whatever it may be. And so, you know, if, if the 10-year treasury is is not the solution, then what is? Yeah. And the other thing that I think about too is, you know, unfortunately, like some financial advice, it, it probably used to be so simple for 
for a good reason in that, you know, frankly, you could just save your money in, you know, in currency, you know, it, maybe it was the dollar, right? That our grandparents would have, you know, the, the like the adage says, they would have tucked it underneath their mattress or something like that. And, and there was a feeling that it might hold its value over time. Or of course, you could simply open up a savings account and, and put your money in a savings account at the bank. And that was very simple, prudent, sound advice. And I think what has happened is people have looked for other other ways to save because maybe they've they've found that advice that used to be prudent to not be the way forward, unfortunately. And so, so like I think you know you might have seen and and you still do, of course, people would look to their home as another savings vehicle, right? You can put more money in, in your house, and over time, you know, you would hope that your the, the value of your property would appreciate at least with inflation. And that's been something that's worked, at least here in the United States, for a few decades. And I think the other thing that I've been seeing more too now, Michael, is is people are also just looking to the markets um, as another savings vehicle. So, of course, the, the bond markets and even the equity markets as a place to park money, not just for the long term, but uh, as a so- short-term savings mechanism. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I, w- I would even say this year alone, probably more so within that millennial space, we're, we're seeing more and more clients or young professionals want to jump into the market, especially once we, we got near the bottom, you know, shortly after April and into May and started to rebound, everyone was talking about, you know, hot stocks that should be purchased that are now at a, at a deep discount and, and allocating funds to the market or looking at micro investing using some, some form of app on their phone to, that, that almost gamifies the experience for investors. And, and the real question is, does that really move the dial? Is that the most prudent approach or the most efficient approach? And is it really going to make a long lasting impact in the interim? To your point, you know, that, that traditional approach to financial advising, opening up a savings account, using CDs or bonds, whatever it may be, that that still holds true. But we're dealing with, I, I feel, and this is my personal opinion, different eroding factors today than our parents and grandparents had to deal with during during their time growing up in the same age bracket. And some of those things really result to one, the improvement and advancements of technology that have now become an integral part to our daily lives, but also just inflation as a whole. You know, just speaking with relatives, looking at, you know, the prices of homes, the prices of cars, looking at, you know, the price of a gallon of milk or a loaf of bread and and what the average annual income looked like 30, 40, 50 years ago compared to now. And just seeing how things just aren't stacking up and moving in lockstep. So it, it's it's one, how can we advise or how can individuals take it upon themselves to be proactive and continue to, you know, build liquidity and put it in a safe, safe location, but also addressing the question of, well, if I'm putting this money aside for for a what if moment or for unexpected life event or treating it as an emergency fund, should I really be expecting to earn anything on return? Because the the price of of you know no principal loss is you know that that reward of earning something in the market. So it, it's really trying to manage the behavioral or psychological approach and meaning behind what we're really doing and what the purpose is for these funds. Exactly. So, so let's get into it. Uh, you know, when, when I think about the short term, there's maybe a couple ways to think about it. Typically, 
I, I kind of, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts too, Michael, I kind of bucket it a few different ways. I think about the short term is maybe five years and less. Not that there's something super scientific or academic about five years, but you know, in my mind, it seems like over the next five years, that's a period of time where I can kind of envision what my life might look like. And, and I don't want to take risk in some sort of investment that could lose a significant amount of principal if I need those funds within five years. So that's kind of how I think about it. I don't know if you have a different way of, of viewing the idea of short-term savings and investing. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you and, and take a similar approach using buckets, you know, short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And and defining yeah. that range, for me, short-term is similar to yours, one to three or one to five years. Okay. And I think it really just depends on one, the purpose of those funds, as well as the um, time horizon of the client or household. But it, in, in, you know, just rule of thumb, usually short-term is going to be between that three to five-year range, in my personal opinion. Yeah, that's good. So here, here's kind of where I've landed with this, at least here in 2020. What what I kind of look at the well, the opportunity for the clients that I work with, at least, is to maybe think of it in terms of like a barbell approach. So if you're, you know, especially like a young household that's trying to do a couple things at once, have liquidity to live their life and and to save for things that are important to them. But on the other hand, they also want to build wealth for the future. I think about, you know, the kind of the kind of really conservative one side of the barbell, which we want to be very safe and protect principal. And then the other side of the barbell is, you know, maybe quite aggressive depending on what type of investor you are. But, you know, in terms of that conservative side of the barbell, we're pretty plain vanilla over here. It's, you know, it's CDs and savings accounts and money markets, market accounts. What we're finding here, at least in Kansas City, is that uh, there's a couple credit unions actually that have kind of attractive rates. If you know, like your local area, it seems like the credit unions have been a pretty interesting way to go here in terms of like money market and CD rates. But it's not a sexy story to tell. It's, you know, pretty, pretty boring. But that's kind of the way we've landed on where you should be parking cash for the short term. So like, you know, saving for your next house purchase, saving, of course, in an emergency fund, which everyone should have. Those are the those are the areas that we're that we're leaning on right now. What are your thoughts? No, I, I agree one hundred percent. And and I would say our our approach and philosophy is very similar to that barbell approach. But you know, using local credit unions, they are tending to have higher higher rates or, you know, I guess better advantages to their solutions or, or products or accounts versus streamlined or mainstream institutions. Also, just letting clients know, you know, from a process or prioritization standpoint, that that life events fund should be number one. And secondly, from an asset location standpoint, liquidity is key, especially for young professionals. You know, I firmly believe that between the age ages of 18 and about 35, those are going to be the, the, the highest liquidity need years of, of an individual's life. There's so many different milestones that are being achieved. And, you know, traditionally it's been graduate from college, get your degree, get into a good paying job and just automatically start aggressively putting money towards your retirement, which, I, which isn't bad advice, but is it the better best answer, if you will, for everybody? And 
I firmly believe it's not. And so with inflation being an issue with, you know, the average annual income not keeping up with inflation, the real question becomes, well, how can you balance both? So for me, it's, it's taking that, that three bucket approach, that, that short term bucket, I'm telling clients that we're not chasing yield here. And, and really, we're never chasing returns, because we have no real control over that. All we can really control is uh, risk exposure, as well as how much we actually put back on our balance sheet. So I'm more excited and more motivated to tell clients, hey, let's let's just focus on putting 15 to 20% of your annual gross income back on your balance sheet and just keep it very elementary. And then having the conversation of asset location on top of that once we've created good systematic habits. And so asset location becomes a question of, okay, well, do we have three to six months worth of living expenses in our life events fund or emergency fund, whichever term you want to use? If yes, okay, well, then Where's our, our tipping point or our pour over point? And once we hit that pour over point, let's start capturing some of that spillage into a midterm bucket where we're going to take on a little bit more risk exposure and maybe we enter the market and, and you know, be somewhere in alignment with like 60% equity, 40% fixed income or 50-50 or 40-60, just depending on the purpose of those funds and just continue to build that liquidity because there's no problem with building that liquidity. And as far as the long-term bucket, you know, being that retirement aspect, we can allocate funds there, but I don't think that that needs to be your end-all solution, end-all be-all, to where all of your discretionary cash flow is just going into pre-tax 401k or 403b or, or, or anything to, to that expense. And, and like I said, these are very generalized opinions, but I think at least for that, that, that short-term, you know, savings, CDs, money market. And then if we're, you know, on the, the closer end of a five year range, if we have the three to six months worth of living expenses set aside at no risk funding, then let's start looking at taking on a little bit of risk just to increase our odds of return on investment. Okay. Yeah. So I like that. So I noticed how neither one of us didn't have said anything about even like a bond fund at this point too. Both of us have kind of stuck <laughs> with, have stuck with kind of banking solutions. Is that kind of where you're at? Yeah. I mean, bonds haven't, at least for the, in my opinion, the last one and a half years haven't really been a great solution with, with the, the downward spiral of, of interest rates, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's just not been favorable. And in all honesty, I feel like they've kind of lost favor and more people have been flocking to, to, you know, equities in replacement, or I guess safer equities, if, if that makes any sense, because it's kind of ironic, but safer equities. I agree. I want to throw just kind of two other things out there just to make sure people are listening, Michael, because inevitably this is going to make somebody really mad. And these, and by the way, I should have said this up front, and maybe I'll add a preamble at the beginning, but none of this is, is any sort of personal recommendation. But since I know it's going to come up, I at least want to add kind of these two um, conversations into the mix as well. The first one is whole life insurance. And the second one is Bitcoin, because I know someone out there is thinking <laughs> about this and someone out there is, is wanting to do this. So I think my, my thoughts on whole life insurance are much more moderate than, than maybe I've seen kind of in the extreme. So you have kind of the extreme financial planner who will say that there's never a use for whole life insurance and you should avoid it at all costs because it's always being sold with, with unethical sales practices. And then on the other extreme, 
you have people that want to use it for everything. And I'm just kind of in the middle thinking, well, there are certainly probably uses for whole life insurance. But of course, as we all know, a lot of people don't understand the product and they don't use it in the way that maybe it should be. And so just with that, with that first piece, Michael, is, is whole life insurance a good solution for short-term savings? My personal opinion is that it honestly depends and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, just as well as I do, financial planning, comprehensive financial planning is more of an art than a science. Sure. And every advisor is going to have a different flair, different philosophy based on their personal experience, as well as um, their working experience over time. So personally, I think there is a time and a place to utilize it. Is it for the short term? I find it hard if you're using pure traditional whole life insurance, not like a universal life or a variable universal life, but just traditional whole life insurance. I find it hard to say that in a one to three or one to five year period, that whole life insurance is the most efficient vehicle that can be used only because the cash value in the policy is not going to grow significantly enough for it to be worthwhile from a, a accessibility standpoint. Because there is death benefit or insurance tied to the solution or the vehicle, there's a cost of that, 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 that death benefit or insurance coverage. So it's not really until after seven to eight years where you really start to see the cash value grow in a meaningful manner, unless an individual takes the time to overfund um, the policy without causing it to mech. Let me just jump back in because you just cut out. I agree. And the only thing that I will, will add to that is in in my experience, the people that I have met that have been able to successfully use permanent insurance in unique ways, like for example, borrow against it to use for different savings needs are actually financial people themselves. <laughs> so it's like insurance agents that have kind of really understand the products and really understand how to how to utilize them. Those are the people that I, I think really thrive with this and really you know enjoy using it because they're kind of drinking the Kool-Aid. More often than not, though, I find many people that have bought these products and they, and they really do not understand how to use them in the way that maybe um, they could be. And so I think that's, that's really the issue here, getting back to your point about financial planning. Well, cool. And so the second thing that uh, I wanted to bring up uh, just to make everyone mad was, of course, just Bitcoin, because inevitably there's someone that's probably using Bitcoin as a short-term investment need. And maybe, you know, in a year where Bitcoin's going up, they think they're pretty smart for that. And I just, I think the only thing that we can say about Bitcoin or that we should say at this point is that for all the things that it is and that it isn't, and um, we don't have to have a debate here, but it certainly is uh, is probably not a conservative short-term savings vehicle. And I'm just going to leave it at that, Michael. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I think there's still a lot of unknowns to just cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as a whole. And with the volatility around it and all the speculation and where, you know, investors think it's going to go and even specialize in that space, I would say that that's not... A, a sound or prudent area to put that short for sure for sure yeah i mean the, one of the one of the analogies i make is like you know if you think of something like bitcoin as a speculation and maybe some people would argue with that but i'm going to call it a speculation you could think of a speculation as like driving 100 miles an hour down a residential street will you get to your destination quicker quicker than you would have if you would have driven 20 well 
probably and, and potentially, but is there potential for causing a lot of damage in the meantime and, uh, and, and being reckless? Definitely. And so that's maybe, you know, the way I would think about, think about it there, but it's easy to kind of get sucked into that when, you know, in a year like 2020, when a lot of stuff like Bitcoin looks quite interesting. No, no, of course, and it's and it's not just that it's interesting. It's it's a new flare. It's 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 a new trend, and it's not that it to your point that it can't work or that it won't work. At that point, it becomes probability and a matter of being right. And if you're right once, that's great. But then you have to be right a second time, and then you have to continue that trend of being right before it all implodes, because one 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 instance of being wrong kind of negates everything that, in essence so you know for me if a client wants to get into crypto and and in alternatives like that that's fine but usually it's a small percentage of kind of more or less play money in, in in my mind for them to kind of do what they want with well said so that's a good segue to the kind of third segment here that I want to do and that is where can you go wrong and this, again, gets into kind of the purpose of why we're doing this in the first place. But but where can you go wrong? You know, one of the first things that comes to mind here, and this relates to the whole kind of cryptocurrency conversation, is that, you know, as financial planners, like a lot of times I like to take the financial planning perspective on, on like how to how to approach this. Because I've seen in 10 years of working with clients just how much the market and what's going on in, in the market environment of affects how people want to make decisions on even something like short-term investing. So I'll, I'll give you an example, which Michael, we've talked about before. But you know, early in my career, I'm like 2010, 2011, this was like after the 2008 financial crisis. What I discovered during that time was a reluctance to put any any money at all into the market, even if it was for like a long-term investment. There was just too much fear when, even though in retrospect, we know, of course, that would have been a great time to do it. And, and now here in 2020, I'm actually seeing the exact opposite. And there's maybe a temptation to leverage up as much as possible and, and be very illiquid and have kind of everything in in uh, you know something like the stock market for example and so that's why i think like just taking the kind of financial planning perspective on this is uh, is a really important way to think of it You're, what do you think michael no i agree i'd be comprehensive yeah. and treat it treat it like medical professionals do when you go in for your annual physical when you go in for an annual physical they're looking at every aspect of, of your health running different you know tests from a lab work standpoint checking different vitals all that they're not just staying at the surface level or staying with the trends of what they're seeing the most of. So it, same concept when it comes to our to our finances. And, and and I think my personal bias is that some of what you experienced, you know, 10 years ago versus today has to do with with the psyche or the the the, the mental psychology of, you know, what type of experience was that investor having at that time? Well, if it was somebody who was experiencing or started their investment journey during a bear market, then I feel like based on you know behavioral finance, they're a little bit more pessimistic when it comes to the stock market. And when things kind of turned sideways earlier in the year, they were probably like, okay, here we go again, and, and got a little you know flustered or emotional. Whereas with investors that have you know started their investment journey over the course of the last three to five years, or even you know the last eight years, they've been in pretty much a bull market that's been fairly consistent. And 
So they're a little bit more optimistic knowing that, hey, this is an opportunity to maximize my growth potential because I know, even though they may not know, that the market's going to rebound. And there's an opportunity to you know, increase my return on investment. And so I'm willing to take that risk with being illiquid and maybe overextending or overleveraging myself with not having that short term that we've discussed you know, on this podcast. Yeah, well said. Another one that comes to mind, just kind of through my personal anecdotes, is maybe just picking on us men in general. I think a lot of times, you know, as men, we we want to burn the ships. You know, men want to take risk, and and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, like you 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 have to take risk to a certain extent, but but I think what that sometimes results in is just not having enough cash on the sidelines not having an emergency fund, being having too much of your net worth in, in risky investments, I think probably could be seen as like a man thing, whereas women might be a little bit of the opposite, where they like the kind of security or the, the kind of conservatism of having more cash on the sidelines. I don't know if you've seen that. No, 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 I agree. And I would even take it a step further that if it's single mm-hmm. men versus single women versus right. married, married men versus married women. And- I think as men in general, we we fall victim to like a confidence bias, especially when we're around other men, to where right. we start to over exaggerate, you know, how how maybe athletic we are or were, or you know, how smart we are or how great we are at doing certain things. We we tend to exaggerate that and, and overextend ourselves. So when we allow those emotions and those feelings and those actions to kind of roll over into personal finances, it, it become it can be problematic in the interim. And you're right. I, I think there is a distinct difference between men and women when it comes to making those decisions. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. So do you have any any other kind of rules of thumb that you follow from a financial planning perspective? So for example, like when setting up like an emergency fund or setting up short-term savings, is there anything you missed? For me, in all honesty, it's about prioritization and and drawing a line for the purpose of the funds. So, you know, if I'm putting money aside and my client tells me that they want to have a sound emergency fund or life events fund, then we're not worried about yield. We're not worried about return on investment because that's the reward we're giving up for that security. And so, you know, it's, it's a matter of setting the order of process or the stepping stones. And a lot of it has to deal with how much discretionary cash flow is left over, whether we can multitask or not. And what I mean by multitasking is that if I have a client that comes to me, we're very minimal liquidity in their emergency fund, then most of the discretionary cash flow is going to be allocated towards building that up to where at a minimum, there's about three to six months worth of living expenses set aside. If there's additional discretionary cash flow to go along with it, then we can start to fund that midterm bucket at the same time, just with a lower percentage of the overall discretionary cash flow. And then once we hit that three to six month benchmark, then we reassess that ratio of, you know, cash flow is going towards pure savings versus midterm and we start to shift it to be more towards midterm that they've that they've mentioned with me. So for me it's a matter of removing emotion, understanding what the purpose of these funds are and not getting sucked into the chasing return because I think that's just a a bad strategy in general. There's too much too much set on hope and hope not hope's not an investment strategy. Excellent. Uh, well I think that was that was well well done, Michael. By the time we release this, we'll have your new bio up on catholicfinancialplanners.com so the listeners can check that out. But other than that, is there anything that people can do to learn more about you? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Obviously, once once I'm up and 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 live on Catholic Financial Planner, then can check me out there under the financial planners that are listed. Also, free to to follow and shoot me some likes on Twitter at Plan with a, as well as just my Facebook business Plan with a Cost as well. I try to be fairly active on a daily basis, if not weekly basis. So, um, constantly putting out content and, and shout outs. Yeah, cool, man. No, we're we're Twitter buddies, so I'm enjoying to see seeing what you're posting up on there. And this has been great. Thanks for thanks for coming on. 